Hey friends, welcome to the Addiction Nutritionist Podcast. I'm Kelly Miller, nutrition therapist, health and wellness recovery coach, and certified nutrition nerd. On this podcast, we talk about all things health and wellness and recovery. We talk about pause and nutrition for post-acute withdrawal syndrome. We talk about biochemical repair and amino acid therapy. We even get into food addiction. We want this platform to be your number one resource for creating health and wellness and recovery so you can stop self-sabotaging habits for good. If you're tired of feeling stuck and you're ready to take action and learn how to build healthy habits and recovery, this podcast is for you. When you recover well, there's just no oxygen for addiction to survive. Let's create wellness together and start today's episode. Good morning, Nikki. How are you today? I'm great, Kelly. How are you? Good. Thank you for joining me today on this Christmas Eve Eve of 2022. Uh, I have no idea when this episode will come out, but we are here ending 2022. Um, Today is going to be probably the first of many episodes about sugar. So we're going to talk about sugar as in relationship to recovery in terms of the sugar cravings that people experience oftentimes before addiction, oftentimes after addiction. We're going to talk about blood sugar management and how that is such an important important piece of everybody's life and health, but also as a really important relapse prevention tool. Um, this is something, it's a topic that I talk about a lot and I love talking about it. So I'm so excited about all the things we're going to get to dig into today. Um, but yeah, interesting about it being Christmas Eve, Eve of 2022, I feel a little bit like this year has been kind of the fog, like we're post COVID post pandemic for a while now, but this year has kind of felt really, I think like a big giant hangover for a lot of people. Like we're still, (laughs) recovering from the chaos of a couple years ago, but I don't know if you've picked up on this vibe or not, but I feel like the vibe around me is that people are super excited to go into next year because it, they almost have this feeling that the fog is going to finally clear. Um, so I don't know if that is kind of where you're at, but that's kind of where I'm at. I'm like, we're at the tail end of all this junk, you know, supply chain issues hanging around and, um, just generally sort of trying to piece together what happened the last couple of years, but going into this next year with excitement, um, not doom and gloom. Like I think a lot of people entered this year into with like, Oh, what now what's going to happen this year? Um, it feels like things are finally returning to normal and I feel super excited about next year. So I, I don't know about you, if that resonates with you at all. I love just hearing all of that. Um, the hangover part definitely does. That's such a great analogy. Like just the full year. Um, And yeah, I think I can pick up on that a bit too. Honestly, like you're probably out and about more than I am, you know, you're Mm -hmm. out like taking kids places and you're involved in, you know, like your church and all of these things. And so much of my world right now, especially since it's winter, Uh um, and I fully work from home, like I'm just not out as much and intermixing. So I'm not tuned into the, um, majority of the popular, you know, of the masses, yeah. But yeah. I mean, my, my friends and colleagues that I am in touch with, I mean, there's definitely, I mean, we're all excited about the next year for sure. Yeah. Oh, good. Okay. Well, I'm glad to hear that. We'll have to check back in next year and see, yeah. see how you're feeling. <laughs> yeah. um, 
Before we get into it, we are going to introduce our sponsor of episode four, Ooh. Blood Sugar Management and Sugar Cravings. Yeah. Drum roll. Drum roll. <laughs> Who's our sponsor? Eggs. <laughs> the oh wonder, what did they used to call it? The amazing, incredible, wonderful egg. I don't know. <laughs> Eggs have just had a roller coaster of a reputation over the last few decades, right? Like the last 50 years, probably. Yeah. Um, how do you feel about eggs? I love eggs. Me too. I love eggs. And I just feel so badly that they've been just on this roller coaster of judgment and, you know, <laughs> I know right? for so long. I think they're amazing. Eggs are like yeah. on so many levels. Totally. I don't really have tons of memories of eating eggs growing up other than having them be in my sausage egg McMuffins. Um, like I don't remember eating a ton of scrambled eggs. I always ate like pancakes, French toast, all the breaded stuff, but I have definitely found, um, I'm in a love affair with eggs as an adult. I just, there's an egg shortage. Okay. Going back to our supply chain issues. I don't know. I think I heard it was the bird flu or something killed off a bunch of poor little chickens. I don't know where about you. There are no eggs in my store uh, earlier in the week. It said limit of two. Now there's just none, no eggs. Um, so, and my mom was like, yeah, you didn't hear there's a national shortage. So I was slightly devastated over that. I'm like, do I need to get chickens? Because I can't live without eggs now. I eat them every week, but almost every day. Wow. I yeah. think you should get chickens. Number one, yeah, I, I can definitely see that being an awesome thing. And my sisters shared that with me yesterday. Cause my mom asked me to get eggs for uh, Christmas. So I picked up eggs on Tuesday and there were plenty of eggs where I was oh. shopping. Um, and I was actually two different stores and they had eggs at both places, but there were more, you know, kind of health food, local, they, they catered to a lot of local vendors mm. and my sisters will shop at more like the bigger chain stores that probably get them from out of state. Mm. And both of them said no eggs, but I had, but there were a ton of eggs in my store. Oh man. I'm going to have to come to your side of town because I'm not, <laughs> we're about to be out and it's not good. I'll get you um, some extras. Yeah. But, you know, one of the reasons I love eggs so much is because I started learning about their incredible nutritional benefits. And when I started on my healing journey of like introducing more proteins in my life, and, you know, this was years ago when I was just starting to enter into this world of changing my diet, I was bringing in more eggs, which was crowding out other items. Um, but I started to learn about this concept of them being like the world's most perfect food. And I had always had that idea of they were bad because, you know, my dad had his first heart attack when I was in high school and I have, let's see, both of my grandfathers died of heart attacks. My grandmother died of a stroke. My other grandmother died of Alzheimer's, but like heart attack, stroke, huge on both sides of our family. And I always was brought up to believe, um, that we needed to take extra special care of our hearts and eat low cholesterol diets because we have this, you know, these God awful genetics that are going to try to kill us. I have uncle an uncle who had his first heart attack in his thirties and ended up dying at 61 of a heart attack, which is relatively young. My grandfather was 54, I think when he died of a heart attack. So it's a big, big thing in our family. Yeah heart attack and stroke. And so when I learned that, I was like, how can that be? Like, I don't understand, you know? Um, and the tide was just kind of starting to turn and bringing eggs back into the spotlight. And we, we could actually do a whole podcast on this, so I won't talk about it too much, but, um, you know, there's a whole, there's a whole conspiracy and a story behind studies that were cherry picked. And if you want to learn more, look up Ansel keys and all the stories behind that they've done documentaries on it. And we'll probably talk about it more another day. But one of the most incredible things about eggs is not only that they're highly nutritious, 
but they're also the most, almost the most perfect ratio of 50, 50 of fat and protein. So you hear a lot of people talking about, oh, I only eat the egg whites, the egg whites. That's where all the protein is. That is okay, I think, but the nutrition is actually in the egg yolk. You know, it's so chock full of nutrition. I mean, it literally has everything in there. And that's one of the reasons it's one of the most perfect foods is because it's got such a wide spectrum of nutrients in it. I mean, it's got everything from phosphorus to choline, B6 and B12, which we've talked about before, crucial nutrients for creating serotonin and dopamine, really important for your mental health, but also folate which is one of the primary nutrients that um, people in recovery from alcohol abuse are usually um, deficient in really great profile with of omega threes. Um, potassium is important for keeping your blood, uh, your blood pressure low. It's got calcium, zinc. We all need more zinc. You know, zinc is really important for kind of stopping the replication of viruses and that sort of thing. Um, I don't know if I mentioned selenium, but Selenium is really important for thyroid health. So especially if you're a woman, like in your thirties, forties or older, like I barely know any women these days who don't have thyroid issues. It's just a massive problem. <clears throat> and so selenium is super important for that. Um, but yeah, I found so many articles written by really well-researched, you know, people citing all these different studies, um, just in the mainstream media about how good eggs are for your cholesterol profile, because they increase your HDL, which is the quote unquote healthy, you know, version of cholesterol. That's the number that you actually want to be higher. Um, and it increases that number for some people, it will increase, um, LDL. And for some people that's okay. And some, for some people it's not, but it's also been shown to lower triglycerides, which is the really dangerous part of cholesterol that we talk about a lot, because if you're lowering triglycerides, you're really lowering your risk for heart attack and stroke. Eggs also have vitamin D, which we know again, super important for serotonin production. Um, really important for the gray matter of your brain. They have this ingredient in them called choline, which in relationship to recovery, I think is so important. And it's so under talked about choline, I guess you would consider it a, a mineral, but it can help to strip fat off of the liver. So if you have like the beginning stages of fatty liver disease or the beginning stages of cirrhosis or anything like that, where fat on your liver is a problem, if you eat a high, high, simple carbohydrate diet, you probably already have fat deposits on your liver, but choline is really important for stripping that fat off of the liver. And it also like is really important for the neurons and the nerve cells, which help you know, the, the nerves are what communicate with each other to send these messages of serotonin and dopamine across the synapse and that sort of thing. So, so many important pieces to eating eggs. You'll hear a lot lately about, um, lutein and zeaxanthin, and those are extremely important nutrients for your eyes. A lot of people are kind of like selling these products now, um, that just have these two components in it. Um, and, you know, saying you have to have this for your, you know, your eye health. Um, but really great source of lutein and zeaxanthin, just natural source, which I'm, I'm a big fan of supplements for a lot of reasons if you're taking supplements in a really targeted way. But I am also always going to go back to that foundation of like getting our nutrition from eggs is, or getting our nutrition from food rather is one of the best things that you can do because our body recognizes those nutrients so much better than they do in vitamins and supplements. So yeah. And you know, the, I will going back to the, the cholesterol conversation. 
I read this little short thing too, about 70% of the population, they're not going to be affected by the cholesterol that's in eggs. That's the thing that people are scared of the cholesterol that's in eggs. I talk to so many people that have no idea that your body actually makes cholesterol, like your liver makes your cholesterol. And so if you're consuming higher, there's evidence to support that if you're consuming higher amounts of cholesterol in your diet, your body senses that and down regulates its own production of cholesterol. So that there's always kind of this balance or seesawing, you know, going on. Um, so it's not just like you eat these eggs and the cholesterol goes straight into your blood and now it's clogging your arteries and you're going to have a heart attack. Like I said, we'll probably have to do a whole episode about that because the root cause of that is blood sugar management. It's damaged blood vessels from high blood sugar that's actually taking the cholesterol in your body and shoving it into those cracks to, to repair it. So it's a way of protecting the body. Um, so we won't go down that rabbit hole, but you know, are these things that you have thought about and learned on your own journey and like maybe your own relationship with things like eggs and foods that have cholesterol in them? Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, for sure. Over the years, I mean, you're so good at just retaining so much information. You always blow me away with the, just your ability to retain so much and then, you know, um, translate, you know, so many different things that you've learned. Um, but yes, I would, uh, you know, I think I told, I mentioned in the last episode that, you know, my first functional medicine doctor was just like immediately getting mm -hmm. me on, you know, eggs and meat and not like I, what, not like I didn't have them in my diet, but he was really saying, you know, you need to bump these up. We need to get your cholesterol up. Cause my, my cholesterol in general was low. Mm -hmm. And then, so, you know, all of, you know, studying, diving into nutrition studies and everything. I mean, you're more formally trained than I am. So a lot of my training or knowledge comes from just self-education. Mm -hmm. Um, but all of these things landed with me, um, for sure. And then like my sister for a while, I remember that whole period, like they told her she had to like stop eating eggs because her cholesterol was high. And I was like, if this just doesn't yeah. make, make sense, how can this perfect little food be bad for my sister? Right. You know, like I remember like thinking about that and, um, and so, yeah, everything that you've said, I have, well, maybe not everything, but I've kind of like learned at one time or another over the years as I've read different books and had different doctors and everything. And eggs have always been a part of my diet for sure. And, you know, like choline is like coming back around. It's funny how things come back mm -hmm. around. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Like even, um, I know that we're going to talk a little bit about, uh, Kathleen de Maison's book today mm -hmm. and to have that come back around 20 years later, when that was the first thing that introduced me to so many of these concepts. Um, but like choline is coming back up in my life lately, yeah. these days, like folate a lot and mm -hmm. zinc, mm -hmm. um, you know, there's just so much out there and certain things land at different times. You're like, oh, I, that's really resonating right now. I need to make that change. You know, we can only do uh -huh. so many things at once. Right. Yeah. And yeah. so it's just, I love, I just feel like this is so synchronistic, this episode for I'm probably for so many people, but I really yeah. feel like it is for me too. So. Yes, I resonate. It resonates. Awesome. Yeah. I, when you were talking about that, I, um, there's a gentleman that I'm going to have on the podcast as a guest one day. I won't say his name yet, but, um, I remember when I first started working with him years ago, I asked him as we were just getting started, I said, how do you feel about eggs? Because I noticed that I didn't really see them in his food journal and stuff like that. And he, and he went yuck. <laughs> and I was like, yuck. Like, what do you mean? You know? And he was like, they clog your arteries, you know? Um, and I always think about that because I, I do get such, um, 
intense responses from people when I ask them about eggs and what their relationship to and their thought is about eggs and stuff. So, um, you know, we're flipping the narrative on eggs. We're bringing, we're giving, mm-hmm. we're, we're going to give it a better reputation and, and tell people the wonderful things about eggs. So I am so happy about this. I, and I, yeah. can I ask a question about eggs? Yeah. Um, is there a better way to prepare them so that you're not like, I don't know. So you're, uh, maintaining the quality and, um, of like all the vitamins and nutrients and minerals in them, like is, is boiling versus scrambling versus like throwing a raw one in your shake. What do you have to Mm -hmm. say about that? Yeah, I get that question a lot, especially from people um, that I work with that are in treatment. Uh, they always want to know if it's okay to throw eggs in their shakes. And I'm kind of like, my answer is always like, you do you, brother. Like, if you want to do that, sure, there's health benefits. I just don't ever tell people to do it just because of that small risk of like salmonella, you know, and especially it's kind of widespread that this is an issue where people have low stomach acid and, and, contrary to what a lot of people believe that they actually think they have too much stomach acid. And so Mm -hmm. people that are, you know, they're in treatment, they're in detox, they're doing all this stuff. It's really common for them to have low stomach acid. And that's one of your like best initial defenses against things like salmonella. You know, we're probably getting exposed to salmonella all the time, but if you have a really robust gut and you have enough stomach acid, that acid actually is your first line of defense to kill that bacteria off so that it doesn't make you sick. So for people that have low stomach acid, which is really common for people in recovery, really common for people that have a lot of chronic stress because stress suppresses the production of that acid. It makes me like nervous, right? So I don't eat them raw, but from my understanding, if you're doing them, you know, over easy or like the least amount of cooking possible to keep uh, the nutrients in the yolk intact is beneficial, but it's also not like exponentially beneficial than having like eggs scrambled well, right? Like I, I eat my eggs scrambled well. I just, that's how I prefer them. And I've looked into it before and yeah, some of the nutrients get destroyed, but I don't think it's enough to, to really make that much of a difference. Um, yeah. I think if you're eating eggs, you're doing, you're doing yourself good. Right. Awesome. And I didn't get to bring up this last, um, I think I, my brain went somewhere else. But the last point that I was going to make about it was that it said 70% of the population are people that are termed hypo responders to the cholesterol in eggs, meaning that they 70% of the population can eat them with no problem. Their body will not have a negative response to them in terms of raising their cholesterol in an impactful negative way that could affect their health. But the other 30% are people that are considered hyper responders. And so they may have a harder time, um, sort of metabolizing that cholesterol and it could raise to dangerous levels for them. Um, and I, and we can talk about that more later. I I offer DNA, uh, DNA testing specific to nutrition. So you can find out a lot of the genes that you carry to see if, you are one of those people, how your body processes cholesterol. I am one of those people in terms of having the genetics that will make my cholesterol profile higher, but there are other markers you can look at to see if that's a dangerous thing for you or not. Cause high cholesterol is not always dangerous. It's not like, it's not that simple of an equation. So anyways, thank you eggs for sponsoring our episode today. And I'm sure that we will meet again and be discussing eggs again. (laughs) Nice work on getting eggs, Kelly. Yeah. I, I hear that it's not easy to get them to sponsor your show. So it's so hard. It's so hard. <laughs> um, anyways. Um, yeah. So let's get into it. You did mention, um, Kathleen 
Demiz I don't know how to say her last name, Demazon's book. And we are going to talk about that. You mentioned it in one of our other episodes. It's called The Sugar Addicts Total Recovery Program. I got this book used for six bucks. Um, but then I feel like I got gypped because the sticker on the front of it said $1.50. So somebody else was selling it for $1. fifty somewhere. Um, you know, if you bought it brand new, it's like 16 bucks, but lots of, um, really cheap copies on the internet. And I had not heard of this book. I had heard of that author because I do have the book that she wrote called potatoes, not Prozac, which is a wonderful book, but I hadn't heard of this one. So I scooped it off of Amazon prime right after you had brought it up. And I just started like ripping through it and making all these notes and, um, you know, folding the pages and there's so much great information in there. And we're going to start talking about some of that, but before we go into that, I want to introduce the idea of blood sugar management as a relapse prevention tool. So we're going to talk about sugar cravings and where they come from and all that sort of thing, but you don't often hear about how important it is to manage your blood sugar in relationship to recovery. You hear about that as important for diabetics. You might hear about it as important for heart health or brain health. It is super important for those things, but it's not being talked about as much outside of the diabetes kind of circuit, right? Um, but in terms of it being important for, for recovery is that this is really one of those important biochemical tools. Like in, in a lot of my groups, I talk about cravings as falling into two different buckets. I don't remember if we talked about this in another episode, but there's psychological cravings and there's biochemical cravings. Psychological cravings are queued up from something external from you. So you were driving down the road and you saw the liquor store you used to frequent, or you bumped into your buddy down the street that you used to use with something outside of you sort of triggered a thought or an emotional response in your body. And that can, that can really elicit a very strong craving for drugs and alcohol if you're in recovery. But so much of what we spend our time talking about is on the biochemical cravings, which are queued up from something inside of you, something internal. And those are like nutrient deficiencies, like we talked about in the crucial nutrients episode. In um, Kathleen Maison's book, she actually talks about studies that have been done on mice and that sort of thing where they induced nutrient deficiencies in mice and that caused them to increase cravings for alcohol. So that's, you know, she just mentioned one or two studies in her book, but I have read about that in many other places. It's a real thing. But then the other side of this coin is the blood sugar management. There's biochemical processes going on inside of us that when our blood sugar drops below baseline, and that can be two different types of baselines. It can be like the baseline of what the medical community deems technically low blood sugar, like below 70, right? But it can also just be if you are a person who has consistently higher levels of blood sugar or you have hypoglycemia, you're, you may have a higher baseline. So doctors may look at your numbers and go, oh, you don't technically have low blood sugar. But if you're experiencing that precipitous drop, that even if it's above that marker, it's still a drop for you. And you can still have really intense symptoms from that because your body is sensing the drop. So I don't know if that makes sense, but um, it's it's really important to talk about. And I'll just give you a brief. I want to say one thing, like I know for a fact that I was definitely in that sort of like category, like my numbers always showed up just kind of fine, you know, for like hypoglycemia, all that kind of stuff. But I was like, I know that it is not right. Like the way that I feel um, in relation to, 
you know, um, to what I eat and what I don't eat and all of the things and just my erratic sort of everything. I was like, there is no way that I don't have blood sugar issues. How is this not like, I was always borderline, but you know, borderline, borderline on the side that was okay. So, and you know how that works in in our culture. So, and I've heard this so many times, oh, my doctor said, everything's fine, right? We did all the tests, everything's fine. But yet they're still reporting the symptoms to me of classic low blood sugar symptoms. So we know for people that are in recovery, not everybody, right? We're just generalizing. But one of the main struggles is they get very intense cravings for things like sugar, things like simple carbs, things made of bread, white flour, that sort of thing. Um, You know, as simple as bagels, right? Anything like that. Um, and the, the reason for that is because they've now entered into a period of abstinence where the alcohol or the drugs that have been stimulating their serotonin and dopamine have now been removed. So the brain and the body are trying to rebalance itself by telling you, hey, just go find anything. You know, we know sugar and simple carbs will do that to an extent. And we need a little bit of bump of serotonin, we need a little bump of dopamine. We just want to feel better. Um, so that's why those cravings tend to go up. So it is kind of a struggle for a lot of people to find balance. And gosh, it's like I'm just being driven towards waffles and pancakes and bread and all these things. But what happens is, is when they're consistently eating that way, we'll use white flour as an example. White flour is technically ground down to such a fine, fine, fine powder, all of the the nutrients and like the bulk of the fiber has been removed. So when you put that into your stomach, because you're eating it, it just gets absorbed rapidly. So if it's being absorbed rapidly, it's going into the into your, um, you know, your, your blood supply very rapidly, which is literally raising the amount of sugar in your blood in a very quick way. In the initial stages of that, that can feel pretty good. Like, oh, I just got a little energized, a little mood boost, you know, I'm feeling better. I, w- I felt like I was starving and I had a Snickers bar or whatever, you know, that's like the classic marketing campaign about being hungry or hangry. Right. And so for, for a hot minute, you do feel better. But what you actually did is you shot your blood sugar way too high again, and what goes up must come down. And now when you're experiencing that drop, because that's how the body reacts to high blood sugar, the pancreas starts to release a hormone called insulin, which is designed to bring that sugar literally out of your blood to go put it into the muscles and other places to be used as energy. You know, when you, when you shoot your blood sugar up so high, these alarm bells start going off and the pancreas goes, whoa, we got like a five alarm fire here. We're going to overproduce insulin to make sure that blood, uh, that sugar gets out of the blood really fast. So the blood sugar goes up, then it drops like a roller coaster. That's when you start feeling those low blood sugar symptoms, which you might notice as any spectrum of symptoms like irritability, crankiness dizzy, shaky, hangry. It can be kind of a wide array, that sense or that feeling that something's just not right. Or you may think you're having an anxiety attack or you're experiencing low level anxiety. It can even trigger like a full-blown panic attack. But what happens is, is that your blood sugar dropped below that baseline number. Again, it could technically be the baseline that the medical community looks at, or it could be your personal baseline where your body has been tricked into thinking that your blood sugar dropped too low. And so now what happens in that instant, and this is how it relates back to recovery, is you have these two parts of your brain that are sort of always working in tandem, the prefrontal cortex, which is like right behind your forehead, which you'll hear 
it being referred to as like your thinky brain, your reasoning or logical brain. It's the it, your human brain. It's the part of the brain that helps you to sort of generate who you want to be and comes up with a plan um, to make that happen. And so in recovery, that's where we keep our, our recovery skill set. We're like, okay, we're in recovery. We're following these steps. We got to think about everything that we do. And then there's this other part of our brain that you'll hear being called the lizard brain or the toddler brain or the primal brain or the instinctual brain or the animal brain. There's so many different words for it, but it's really that other part of our brain that is just responding and reacting. And it's only responding to like stimuli and triggers. And when it's triggered like that, it kicks you into fight or flight. And it literally tells you just do what you got to do to survive. And so when your blood sugar drops below that baseline, whatever that baseline is for you, it kicks you into operating out of that part of the brain. Your recovery skill set is not in that part of your brain. That part of your brain just says, do whatever it takes. And I want it now. So if if it tells you go get some sugar or go get some alcohol or go get whatever you need to feel better right now, because things that stimulate dopamine will actually help bring your blood sugar back down too. Um, that, that is why it's a relapse, um, risk because it's, it's literally kicking you into a different part of the brain where you've lost your brakes. You know, we, you'll often hear the prefrontal cortex be described as the brakes of the brain. That's where the amygdala or the primal brain goes, Ooh, I know what we can do. And then the prefrontal cortex goes, Whoa, 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 pump the brakes. Sounds like fun, but that wasn't a part of our plan, right? We're not doing that anymore. You know? Um, so it's this epic battle between like the front part and the back part of your brain. And I'm oversimplifying in that sense, but you can kind of get a visual of like the parent versus the toddler. The toddler's like, I want it. I want it now. And the parent's like, but that's not what's good for you. Right. I got to protect you from yourself. (laughs) And this is the (laughs) battle of recovery, protecting yourself from yourself. And in the connection between managing your blood sugar of just that simple of like, evaluating what am I doing that's potentially shooting my blood sugar up too high. There's, I find a lot of people with beliefs that this is just how they're wired, but so many people just have reactive hypoglycemia, which is a lifestyle form of blood sugar uh, dysregulation where it's only, it's been instigated by their lifestyle choices, or they'll tell you, I've been this way since I was a kid. But, but that's when you look at the diet, you know, is there enough protein? Is there enough fat? Are you too much of a sugar burner or a carb burner? You know, do you are you constantly indulging in those sweets? Um, so it's, it's such an important tool and it usually like blows people's minds if they haven't heard of this concept before, because they're like, they'll start to recall stories. I remember a guy telling me like, oh my gosh, I finally know why I relapsed after that basketball game. He went and did a pickup basketball game. He didn't eat before the game. All of a sudden the game ended. He has no memory other than going from the game to finding himself in the parking lot of a liquor store. He didn't eat before the game. And he was like a really hard, sweaty basketball game and his blood sugar dropped too low. And it was like instantaneous. He must've had a craving and went straight to the liquor store and relapsed. Wow, Kelly, it's such an incredible analogy, visual, um, the way that you put that, um, is so helpful. It's such a great reminder because people in recovery, like, I don't know if you can relate. I'm guessing you can. It's so easy to instantly like this stuff will make sense. Like, wow, light bulb goes off. But then the next day, like, it's almost like you have to remind yourself of these things. Like, 
on the daily, almost maybe like minute by minute sometimes, depending where you are in your recovery journey, because that depending on how strong those sides are, right. Mm -hmm. Or maybe even just that day, you know, cause it kind of just depends. Like you're, you may be volatile for quite some time until you've established a real foundation. Mm -hmm. Um, but so it's just, it's, it's such a great concept to really understand and to, and to try and really, really, um, digest and remind yourself of constantly and check in who's mm -hmm. talking, who, who's, who's, you know, who's kind of like, where's the impulse coming from? Mm -hmm. Where's the direction coming from? And a quick check-in mm -hmm. could be so helpful for so many people. Yeah. I've just like heard story after story of you ask somebody after they relapsed to re replay that for me. What happened a couple years ago? I remember somebody telling me a story of a loved one that they had where they had had like two years in recovery from alcohol, something like it was an extended period of time and they were hungry. And they wanted to go to like Sonic or something like that. And everything was fine. It was like, they got hungry. They had, they realized they hadn't eaten for a while. They went to Sonic. Oh my gosh. Like hell broke loose. Apparently instead of going to Sonic, they went to the liquor store and ended up getting drunk in the parking lot of the liquor store. And then having a horrific car accident right after that. And when those, this person went back to them, it was like, what happened? They couldn't, they couldn't explain it. They were like, I have no idea. It's like the most, it's like, it's as if I blacked out, you know, and it, I don't want that to, when I tell that story or I tell this concept, that's not an excuse for people to be like, see, I blacked out. I don't have any responsibility for my actions or whatever. Right. There's, I do believe that there's still something there that's consciously leading you to that. Um, mm -hmm. But I do, I do recognize when people are telling me these stories, they really do believe that this was some sort of compulsion that happened instantaneously. And they can, e they just can't even hardly explain to you how it happened. They're not lying. They're like, I don't know. I was here. And then I was here. It was a nightmare, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, so there is, you still have control, but when you're fully operating out of that fight or flight state, it is exponentially more difficult. Right. Or, 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 even, or even if you're, if you're, I'm sorry, I just suddenly started echoing. Um, even if you're, just slightly more, um, in that state. Like, you know, if the balance isn't like as extreme, but you're just like a little bit more driven by that, mm -hmm. you know, that just reminded me, you sharing that story reminded me of like the first two individuals who really kind of like said something that, you know, that struck a chord with me was, uh, uh, chiropractor naturopath that one of my bosses sent me to, um, after a car accident, and actually about the car accident I'm about to tell you about. Um, and she, you know, she said something about low blood sugar and like how I was ne not allowed to have bread anymore, unless it's a vehicle for protein. Like that mm. was her, that was one of the first things that I was like, and now that, that, that was like a shot to the heart mm. that first time 20 plus years ago when somebody said I had to give up bread. Oh my gosh. I mean, that was, I mean, literally like maybe even worse than taking away alcohol. And I have, I wasn't ready to give up alcohol up at that time. But yeah. anyway, that other instance was the car accident that I just referred to. I was driving to work and uh -huh. I got, I got tagged by a, um, by a FedEx truck. Like I'm so lucky to be alive, like T-boned by a wow. giant FedEx truck spun around, hit, hit a parking meter, oh my and, gosh. you know, woke up. And, um, but in the ambulance, I remember the paramedics asking me, you know, do I, you know, or actually telling me that I had low blood sugar or asking me about blood sugar and they brought it up. And I didn't, I don't think they took my blood or anything, but 
I was like, this is interesting that they brought this up. I I don't know. It was just like certain symptoms that I was um, presenting in the moment, Yeah, but um, that stood out, you know, how certain people say things and you're like, I should probably remember that and look into that. It was one of those moments. Yeah. So, and I just feel like for so long, I was just functioning, maybe not in the extreme, but definitely on the borderline of having this other side, always running the show, just enough yes. protein to keep me com- from completely annihilating, annihilating myself, but enough that this part was always a little bit more in charge. Yes, I can completely identify with that. I mean, that is how I feel like most of my life was. I talk so much about moving from that reactive state to resilient because it you if you're if you have experienced active addiction or you're in recovery, my bet is this resonates with you too. It maybe sort of understanding that parent versus toddler brain and who's running the show. When you know that that toddler is running the show, most of the time that creates a whole host of other things, not just negative consequences, but also a lot of shame and tension because you're constantly in that state of, I know what to do, or I know what I want to do, but I just can't seem to do it. Right. That's like the struggle of our lives. You hear about this with food, with so many people, you know, I went into the Christmas party telling myself I would only have one treat and I ate the whole plate like that that encapsulates so much of how I lived my life and the shame and the tension that resulted from that. And so we're going to talk, you know, in future episodes and in the group, a lot about all the different things you can do to strengthen your prefrontal cortex and to allow that to lead you through life. Blood sugar is a major piece of that, but there are so many other things that you can, you can work that part of your brain like a muscle so that it becomes stronger and stronger and stronger over that toddler brain and that you get in that driver's seat and your brakes are fully functioning. And when you do that, you're so much more likely to stay in recovery, but your life just gets so much better because now you're living in alignment. Your behaviors are in alignment with your desires and your values. And that that's what we all want, right? We, we want to be the person who does what we say and say what we do. And that's actually the quote that helped me to quit smoking years ago. I was sitting in a mom's group and I read Matthew 537. Um, it's a scripture from the Bible that says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Mm-hmm. And I'll never forget the minute that I read that because it was the moment I realized that's who I, that's who I've wanted to be my whole life. And I know that I can't be that person unless I say I'm going to quit smoking and I'm going to do it for good for the rest of my life. So anyways, <laughs> just a little tidbit there. Um, but yeah, it just, it, we're t- it's like, we're talking about this sciencey stuff with blood sugar, but what we're really talking about is the quality of our lives. You know, it's such a, it's such a big deal. Kelly, one of my teachers, something that he said that um, early on when I started studying with him, that was so profound, kind of like your um, quote with of Matthew just now, was he said, anytime you have a client or yourself whose actions are not uh, um, matching their words, there's most often, most likely an addiction, addiction is at play. That's fascinating to hear you say it that way, because- that's true. It must, it's, it's gotta be true, right? Because if you're, if you're continuing to do something you don't want to do, what is compelling you to do that? You're probably addicted, you know, mm-hmm. your brain and your, your chemistry has been, been hijacked. So, ugh, so, so such an important topic. Yeah. You've also used the uh, term, um, 
like online and offline in the past too. That also, that also resonated with me. Um, Yeah. You know, like, and I think that it was when you're in the prefrontal cortex, you're online or I don't know. It's, I don't know what you used. Keeping your brain online. Keeping your brain online. Yep. Totally. If you're operating out of the prefrontal cortex, you're, you're keeping your brain online and it's helping you navigate your life when it goes offline. That's when, you know, the wheels fall off and all hell breaks loose and you're operating out of that amygdala or primal brain. So yeah, thanks for bringing that up. Um, so yeah, super important part. So just to like, like extremely simplify and touch on how you want to start addressing that two things, protein, 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 (laughs) um, starting with breakfast and then moving into incorporating it into all of your meals. And that those are the, actually the first two steps of Kathleen DeMaison's book. Um, the first step is protein and breakfast. And the second one is protein three times a day, which I was just dying when I read that. So I was like, this is exactly what I've been doing for years with my clients. And I can't believe I never knew her book. So it was funny to me because you don't, you don't often hear people or see people sort of like totally backing up this idea, um, except for a handful of people that work in this space of addiction nutrition, or you hear about the importance of protein, but in light of all these other different things, but she's really specifically talking about it in terms of cravings and breaking these sugar addictions and that sort of thing. So that was interesting. Um, you know, I thought it was funny. I went into PubMed because I was, there's all this kind of controversy and we won't get in the weeds about it, but there's all this controversy around what is hypoglycemia and who actually has hypoglycemia. So just to touch on that a little bit, There's reactive hypoglycemia, which means that it's based on the foods that you're eating. You have a blood sugar drop or what we would call a precipitous drop after a meal. It's called postprandial. So that is just your blood sugar reacting to your actions. Then there's true hypoglycemia, which is actually pretty rare. It's like your blood sugar consistently falls below baseline because your body's not functioning well enough to keep your blood sugar up. Like your body has all these protective mechanisms where it's storing a backup form of sugar called glycogen in your liver and in your muscles. And in a, in a normal, healthy, average person, if you went for a while without eating, you might experience some low sugar, uh, low blood sugar symptoms, but your body has a way of like dumping more sugar into your blood in an emergency situation. So true hypoglycemia is actually pretty rare. It means there's like a major dysfunction there with your body, not doing what it needs to do to protect you. And you might like fall into a coma, pass out or whatever, but so many people are misquoting themselves they have a misunderstanding of their own hypoglycemia because some random doctor told them they had it, or they just heard about it. And they're like, I'm hypoglycemic. And they take this on as like an identity. And they actually have no idea that it's probably reactive hypoglycemia. It's, it's an imbalanced blood sugar state in reaction to your lifestyle, your food choices, the way that you've always kind of had your pattern of eating. And I, (laughs) maybe we shouldn't talk about this, but I want to bring it up because I just have this sense in my gut that people are going to resonate with this. I feel like a lot of people have that person in their life and I have these people in my life and I won't name them, or maybe you are that person where you sort of use your quote unquote hypoglycemia as a mask for your bad attitude or your bad mood. 
you know, like you're in the car and you haven't eaten in a while and you're, and everyone around you who knows you really well is like, they start to see the symptoms. You're starting to get irritated. You're starting to get red in the face. You're starting to get really snippy. And it's like, oh God, we got to get so-and-so food. Right. And they're like, I got to find some food. I got to find some food. They actually think they're going to pass out. So it creates this like emergency for everyone. Like, oh, we got to get so-and-so food. You know, it's always been this way. You know how so-and-so gets when they don't eat. Right. Um, and they've just been moody their whole life. And she actually, I've heard about this. I think I want to say I had this insight on my own many years ago when I started learning this material, the term dry drunk is really not a accepted term anymore. We're really trying to get away from using that term because it's very kind of negative and shamey and that sort of thing. But what a dry drunk is essentially it's been used to describe a person who gave up alcohol, but they never like their attitude, their, their beliefs, the way they show up in the world never really changed. So the alcohol is gone, but all the moodiness and anger and all those other things are still around. But I'm, I was fascinated when I started reading about that because I know so many people who are not alcoholics or maybe they don't even drink, but they have the same exact symptoms of, as a dry quote unquote dry drunk. And I'm like, maybe a part of that dry drunk syndrome is that they didn't work a program and they didn't work on the character flaws that come along with alcoholism or addiction. But I actually suspect there's a huge part of this that it's just that they have never managed their blood sugar and they never saw that connection. And so we're going around calling people dry drunks because they didn't work their AA program when they're, you know, maybe they're still showing up to AA, but they're having three servings of donuts every time they go with their, you know, their coffee and their cigarette, which those two things affect your blood sugar too. So, um, yeah, I just wanted to bring awareness around if you believe you're hypoglycemic, maybe find out, are you really true hypoglycemic? Do you have what's called reactive hypoglycemia? Um, and could you potentially be one of those people whose blood sugar is in the normal range at all times, but you have those precipitous drops that are above that baseline. So you're only experiencing those low blood sugar symptoms, but you're never in any real danger of your blood sugar dropping below baseline or passing out or whatever. Those people exist, but I think there's such a small, small portion of the population. Kelly, you made what do you think about a great that? point. I, okay. I agree 100%. And even more um, like a perfect opportunity to say, okay, if this is resonating with you, like work with Kelly, <laughs> like work with this woman in front of you who you're listening to right now and, and figure it out. I mean, recovery is hard enough. It is so hard, so hard on all of the levels, you know, mentally and emotionally, like predominantly well, and physically mm-hmm. to all of them. But if you can help kind of like minimize the, the physiological biochemical component Mm -hmm. through diet and make Mm -hmm. it a little less horrible, please Mm -hmm. do that because, because it's, I'm sorry, but recovery sucks. It is one of the hardest, (laughs) hardest, shittiest things to go through. It's so it challenges you. It, 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 it humbles you daily. It's so, so hard. So if there's any way you can make it easier, please do. And this is not just get, get your biochemistry in, in order so that you can deal with the, all of the other challenges and, um, opportunities and, mm-hmm. um, everything else with a, a better frame of mind, with more consistency, with more confidence, with, um, more lightness, um, more dedication, more, you know, consistency is probably the biggest thing, you know, mm-hmm. because that's one of the things that's so hard to get in recovery is just traction 
And mm-hmm. most likely it's because everything you just said, you're constantly on this roller coaster, this biochemical mm-hmm. roller coaster. So you're not really getting any real traction because you're constantly mm-hmm. like falling down and then spiking up and falling down. So minimize mm-hmm. that and then start to take those slow steps and it won't be so horrible and <laughs> you won't be falling on your face so often. Right. And that, and I feel like one of the biggest challenges to maintaining consistency is the lack of aftercare groups and accountability for people in recovery. And so, you know, if you just to plug the membership group, like we're going to have groups within that group, you can join challenges and things like that, where we're all going to do this together. Some of us will buy what's called a CGM. Um, which is a continuous glucose monitor, which is like a lot less like invasive and accessible than people might think. Or some people might just do the little finger prick. Um, You know, you can buy those types of contraptions or whatever you call them at the, um, at your local pharmacy. Uh, And we'll talk about that a little bit more when we do the wrap up, but you can do things to start tracking your own blood sugar to see where it's at and figure out, you know, how your food choices are affecting your blood sugar and, and gaining more awareness around when are, when am I in fight or flight and when am I actually using my prefrontal cortex? And so having the group to do that together and providing, not only like the raw data and the really important information, but doing it together so that you can be consistent and have that accountability. is just, it's going to be amazing. So I love this. I think, I think you could write a book just on everything you just shared this, this one theory of yours that, you know, Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, probably. I mean, probably, actually, you should probably have um, uh, Kathleen de Maison on here. I would love interview. to have her on. I've been poking all around her website over this oh. last week. Just you can buy her dissertation on there. And so, one of the things she said in her book is that she was the first ever person to get a PhD in addiction nutrition. I was like, wow, I didn't even know you could do that. Like, I'm sure it would be a possibility, but she was the first person she said to do that. So, I was fascinated by that. Um, but also, you know, one of the things I've learned through this process, when I first started doing this work, I read the book, seven weeks to sobriety, which is by Dr. Joan Matthews Larson. And she talks a lot and has run some studies about the extreme prevalence of reactive hypoglycemia in the alcohol abuse population. It's like somewhere between like 75 and 85%. So if you are in recovery from an alcohol use disorder, it is highly likely that you have reactive hypoglycemia. So just very important, you know, piece of the, of the puzzle. She, she has this one study that's really great where she, I want to say there was a hundred participants and like 60% of the people that were coming through this program that she used to run. um, So I guess it would be 60 of the hundred had been in previous treatment programs and centers and just failed and failed and failed. Um, And what she did was implemented like a nutrition program. So she was replacing certain nutrients, the nutrients that we've talked about so much, you know, making sure that they were eating protein and that sort of thing. Um, And then after the study was completed, 85% of the subjects reported themselves as abstinent and stable at 12 months and 42 months post-treatment. And, and, you know, if you know anything about the standard treatment model today, it's like hovering around 25% success rate. 
And we also know that most of these programs are not utilizing nutrition or they're going about it in the completely wrong way where they're trying to help people be more like plant-based and plant forward, which there's nothing wrong with including a lot of plants in your diet, but they're, oh, they're skipping over the foundational piece, which is the shoring up of the protein. Yes, we need lots of plants, but actually the protein is the number one thing that's going to help stabilize your blood sugar, blood sugar, give you the most bioavailable of all the nutrients that you're specifically missing. Um, lots and lots of benefits to all of those, you know, fruits and vegetables, but they just skip over that, that they skip over step one, you know? Yeah. The building block, like the foundational building block, literally the building block. Right. Mm -hmm. Oh my goodness. Um, yeah, I was looking at her study and it also said, you know, it said diet and lifestyle were altered to eliminate refined sugar, caffeine, nicotine, and other highly refined products, mostly things made of white flour, white rice, and things you would consider junk foods, um, and stuff that had like a lot of additives and chemicals in it. You know, um, it, it said symptoms characteristically seen in many absent alcoholics were significantly reduced or eliminated during just the first six weeks of treatment, including cravings for alcohol, depression, emotional ability, and confusion. Um, you know, it's just such fascinating stuff. That's another really good book. If you are in recovery from substance, um, if you're in recovery from alcohol abuse specifically, um, seven weeks to sobriety fantastic book. If you want to get into the science and into a lot of the practical stuff. Um, but let's talk about the sugar addicts, total recovery program. Thank you so much for introducing me to this book. I mean, I'm only a, like a quarter of the way through it. Um, cause that's about all I could get through during this week. Cause I just heard about it, but then I started like flipping through the middle and the end parts and just kind of like randomly highlighting stuff. So many interesting nuggets in here. You know, the first thing I noticed is that when I was reading her story, I just kept going, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, how have I not read her story before? It's like, she's reading my life story. So that's like creepy and, <laughs> but validating at the same time, like there, this, this space of addiction nutrition is so small right now. You know, it's not like the bigger topics of like <laughs> autoimmune disease or something where it's like, there's a, you know, there's 5 million practitioners out there that are trying to help you walk through an autoimmune disease, super important stuff, but you could just Google anything and come back with all these resources, the resources and the things we're going back to for addiction nutrition are so small. So when you read someone's story or like a study comes out or whatever, you're just like, oh my gosh, this is so important, you know? And Kelly, I, just, I honestly yes. feel like it's the missing part. Like if you want, it is. As far as like 12 step programs, uh -huh. you know, like if this, okay, here's the big book, right? If they uh -huh. could just stick this book that's in your hand behind the big book, mm -hmm. that's a program. Yeah. I mean, that's the full program, right? Yes. There, really. It's missing such a huge component, which is why I've always had such issues with that program. Like this, it's missing the, the main, a major, major fundamental. It's literally a paragraph when they talk about halt, hungry, angry, lonely, tired. They yeah. just barely, it's a concept that was introduced back in the very beginning with the bills and, um, but it just got totally overlooked. I don't know. It's, and I, and I think about your story when you were telling me in the initial days of you going to meetings and stuff like that, people would be like, oh, we don't want to hear the food stuff, you know? I don't know. It's just, it's so fascinating to me, but I wanted to read just a tiny little snippet of this stuff because it was just so mind blowing to me. So she said, 
I had to stop drinking in my early 20s, but I still had a powerful interest in sweet things. I needed them. I planned my life around them. Oh my gosh, that was me, right? I kept a supply, got upset if someone ate my goods and knew the best places to get my quote unquote drugs. Even though until recently, other people discounted the idea of a sugar addiction similar to an addiction to alcohol or drugs, I knew better. I knew my addiction to sweets was running my life. Like, oh my gosh, yes. Like, I can't imagine back in the day, somebody like eating my secret stash of stuff and like the rage that would ensue from that. And even knowing like, I don't live in a food desert. I can go one mile down the road and go get something, but just like going to reach for something and it, someone else had eaten it, you know, the ice cream or the cookies in the cabinet or whatever. Oh, it would just kill me. She, and she goes on to say, I didn't realize it, but my sugar addiction was associated with my mood swings, depression, fatigue, fuzzy thinking, PMS, impulsivity, and unpredictable temper. I had no idea that all these things could be connected to what I was eating. After all, I was just eating sugar, not using heroin or alcohol. I feel like I could have like, I feel like those were like some of the exact words that I've said when I'm sharing my story, you know? And then finally she says, when she starts talking about the things that she changed, she said, the results stunned me. Not only did I lose weight, I felt incredible. My cravings went away. My mood swings disappeared. I felt focused and clear and excited about my life. I stopped feeling compulsive about food and sweets. I mean, again, I'm just like, I feel like I know her after reading that. I'm like, both of us. Right. But she also talks a lot about like a online forum that she started years ago where she has thousands and thousands and thousands of mostly women, a lot of men too, but mostly women saying exactly the same thing as her. So it's like, you feel a little bit alone sometimes in your story of like, oh my gosh, like I look back on decades of my life and how, how overrun it was by my cravings you know, for things, my cravings for cigarettes or my cravings for sweets or my cravings for bread, which was a big, big one for me. Um, and you, like I was saying in that last episode, like it's bittersweet when you go, Oh, I finally have the, the answer, the key I've changed my life. I can look back and be like, Oh, things are so much better now. But then you also have that sadness of like how long you lived your life in that state, you know? Um, So yeah, she said, this felt like recovery. As a result, I got really interested in the relationship between diet and nutrition. And I just wrote in my book, like, wow, my story, you know, because if you, if you listen to the previous episodes where I talked about, it was autoimmune disorder that led me into the world of nutrition, but I had no idea the journey that it was going to take me on because I thought I was just working on these symptoms when the, the real result was the mood, the mood and the break from addiction, the, the, foundation it created for me to become a completely different person. Absolutely. Yeah. I was thinking last night, um, and I was kind of looking over the notes for the show and I was trying to remember like, when did I come across her book? I was trying to like, just timeline it a little mm-hmm. bit. Yeah. And it just, it took me back to my, my journey was like, I quit drinking, um, and doing drugs before I realized I had an alcohol problem. I quit because the depression was so bad. I was trying to overcome and treat my depression. I needed to get a handle on it. It was so life. um, It just caused so much um, conflict in my life. I was like, I need to do anything I possibly can to to get rid of this depression. And alcohol is a depressant. I should probably stop. But (laughs) but when I stopped and that's when 
all of this stuff skyrocketed. Like my cravings were through the roof. Like it was insane. And like just my ability to not, I couldn't think and, and all of the things. And so that's how I came across somehow I came and I didn't want to go on um, antidepressants right away. Mm. I didn't want to go on drugs on medication right away. So somehow I found potatoes on Prozac mm-hmm. and that was the entry to all of it. And then, um, and then that eventually led me to the book that you're holding, but it's just so interesting because that's it. Then it just made me think of like all of the years preceding my drinking, my mm-hmm. food habits and my mm-hmm. cravings, like orange juice, bagels, <laughs> you know, quesadillas, you know, oh my gosh. Orange juice and bagels, classic American breakfast told by, I won't name who, but a very large group of people that expel nutrition advice, that it's a wonderful way to start your day. It's literally the worst, (laughs) the worst, the The worst. worst. And so, so many years of just like, I just, everything like spoke to me as well in her books and it all just made so much sense. And and it was interesting because I didn't really understand all of the recovery stuff about addiction came later, but I found her because of depression wow. and because of the sugar, incredible sugar cravings and bread cravings and everything that skyrocketed like incredibly when I stopped drinking. Yeah. And funny for me, the sugar and the bread cravings were so intense from such a, a young age that I do think that that laid the groundwork for me to develop the dependence on alcohol. So for some people it's preceding for some people it's after, you know, it, my cravings oh. before I quit were so horrendous. Um, mm-hmm. but I got my food stuff in order before I quit drinking. And so my sugar cravings were not that bad afterwards, but mm-hmm. You know, she, she, you know, after she talks about being the first person to get a PhD in addiction nutrition, she was all right. She had already been running treatment centers for a long time. She did this work and then started to create this food plan, which she goes into more detail in the book and implementing it in these centers. And she claims that the treatment center she ran her food plan program at had 90% of the clients got sober on the food plan. And then 92% of those um, that did get sober on the food plan stayed sober many months out. That's, that's how she described it. So even higher success rates than, you know, what Dr. Joan Matthews Larson was working with, but it's, it's just mind blowing. And I have seen this over and over and over again, when I'm working in the detoxes and the rehab centers and stuff, I will come one week, I will have like a whole new group of folks. I will talk to them about protein. They have the opportunity to set goals for themselves, which is often, getting more protein. I come back the next week. I'll never forget this one guy. I have no idea how old he was because you could just tell he'd been ravaged by addiction. Like it was probably meth or heroin. It was, it was bad. He could have been younger, but he looked older. Like he could have been anywhere between, he literally could have been anywhere between 28 and 52. I don't know. But I remember talking to him and I, I came back to group after we had had really intense discussions about protein. And he, I remember him walking in the room and he like threw his arms up in the air and he was like, I cannot wait to tell you what has happened. And it's like, what's the matter? And he's like, I'm a whole new person. And I was like, what do you mean? You know? And he was like, I just started eating protein. That's it. He's like, I was always just like Mountain Dew and cereal and like snacking all day and just lots of sugar and bread. And he's like, and I just started doing what you said about eating more protein. He was like, he's like, I feel like I'm 18 again. He's like, I feel like I'm alive. And I was like, holy cow, you know, like I'll never forget him because he just had such a intense 
intense joy over making this one simple change and what a crazy shift it had in his mood and his well-being. And just think about how how more well-positioned somebody like that is to do the work of recovery. When you stabilize their mood and you help them reduce the cravings that are really distracting and you don't necessarily have to do it with all these pharmaceuticals that have all the other side effects that make people really sleepy and all of that. They're just so so much more well-positioned to do the work of recovery, to work on the relationships, to work on their communication style, to give really good you know, dedicate time to thinking about what they've done and how they can change things. And it's just, it's really remarkable. Well said, so, 100%. Yeah. So the, the meat of, of this that I really wanted to get into it um, with you about, and this is kind of the, um, well, it's the second to last topic that we were going to touch on today, is this idea that she introduces the sugar sensitive person. Um you have you often hear about people who have had an experience with alcohol abuse talk about you know their genetics led them to being an addict or they have genetics that make them more susceptible to being an addict or being addicted to alcohol or and you hear about this in the general um you know discussions about um drugs as well not just alcohol but i'm not sure that i've ever really heard a lot of discussion around people being more sugar sensitive she talks about sugar invoking a beta endorphin response. Now in the work that I've done, the books that I've read, we're con- we're like hyper-focused on serotonin and dopamine. So you hear about that talked about a lot, like, oh, you, you know, you eat a little sugar it increases your serotonin. That's where the cravings are coming from. But she sort of, she doesn't discount that, but she really hyper fixates on this beta endorphin response. And I wanted to get your thoughts on this. I'm going to pull some stuff out of this book for us to talk about, but Do you remember being introduced to that concept and what are your thoughts about it? I remember being introduced to all of it, the serotonin, Mm -hmm. like a neurotransmitters pyramid period at that time, it was all, it all came in one package. So like Mm -hmm. I wasn't already hyper-focused on serotonin and then suddenly learned about beta endorphin. It just all made sense. Yeah. It all made 100% sense. Yeah. Do you, do you, when you say it made sense, did it resonate with you? Did you like, did you personally feel like maybe you had a stronger response to sugar than somebody else, or that maybe somehow your genetics were involved in your sugar cravings? Like, do you have memories of thinking about or watching other people interact with foods that they had, a, it, it appeared as though they had a lot of control over, and maybe you felt like you had less control? I would say it made more sense to me in Like, I just know that I always craved all of those, you know, um, high glycemic foods, you know, Mm -hmm. like, like from being a a very small child on, I can't say that I was like crazy for candy, but you know, like I lived on bread and pasta and like I said, orange juice, like, I don't know if I, if you know this, but my dad, you know, his company was a spaghetti spaghetti and spaghetti sauce company. So like, I ate a ton of just pasta. Pasta, 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 like all the time. Right. I didn't know that. Yeah. And so I feel like what, what really resonated when I was learning all of this was like, we were talking last, last week, a little bit about like that first drink I had. And that first time I got drunk, it was just like, Oh, all of it. Like I got the confidence. I I've never felt so, so right. 
you know, like just having this, the substance that's just put, you know, like all the pieces just came together. Right. And so she talked about up, upregulation and downregulation and how a sugar sensitive person could be upregulated. Like we have low serotonin, low beta endorphins. So we have all of these receptors that are opened up because we are going to try and take anything that could possibly fit into that and cause the, create the production of those and utilize mm -hmm. any that enters our system. And mm -hmm. so having just like this ample, like, you know, garden bed of receptors ready for anything that's going to come in and make me feel centered together, peaceful, calm, all the things. And mm -hmm. that's what resonated when I learned that from her is that sort yeah. of that just being primed for that because I was low, just, I was just low in general. Yeah. She uses that word primed a lot because she, you know, she believes that, you know, through her research that people's genetics sometimes caused by, because as, as probably a lot of our listeners may or may not know your genes can be expressed or they can lay dormant and your genes the way that your genes are expressed is not destiny. It's due to the environment. And so she talks a little bit about children and grandchildren of alcoholics and how their, you know, the DNA has changed due to the alcohol abuse. And so the genetic expression is different. So those folks are more susceptible um, to things like sugar and alcohol, but it doesn't necessarily have to be that you are the child or a grandchild of an alcoholic. It can just be that you carry this genetic makeup that makes you exactly like you said, that upregulation, it creates more receptors. So ultimately the result is you have a stronger response. And so, you know, that was something that I experienced growing up where I constantly had this feeling of like, how come people around me can control their consumption and I can't, how come people around me can eat all of these foods in what looks like a really controlled way. And it doesn't even look like they're even thinking about food. And I'm obsessed with food. You know, like I, I have to have certain things by certain times of the day. And I could, I could never go into a work shift without have eating bread and having a cigarette or having, you know, caffeine or something stimulating. Like when she says it run her, it ran her life. That was literally my experience. Just the other day I was talking to my mom because it's the holidays. And she was telling me about this chocolate cake recipe she used to make as a kid. And she was like, Oh, I used to make this all the time because you loved it because you know, you had to have chocolate. Those were her exact words. You had to have chocolate. Everybody around me knew Kelly had to have chocolate. My dad would always talk about how I would eat gobs and gobs and gobs of chocolate covered raisins. And he said he would like come in the room and he could almost see my heart beating out of my chest. And he actually thought I had tachycardia as a kid because I, I would get my heart racing so fast just from eating gobs and gobs of chocolate. Um, so yeah, it's just, you know, this idea. And I have read in the mood cure and seven weeks to sobriety. And, you know, in this space of being an addiction nutrition, there is a, we have talked a lot about the opioid effect of certain things for some people. If somebody tells you that they drink to escape the pain of life, you that's kind of a red flag for knowing that they probably have a stronger morphine like or opioid like response to alcohol than somebody who says, Oh, I drink to get the party started because it gets me energized, you know, cause that's mm -hmm. dopamine. Mm -hmm. Um, and so there, there, there are, there is a section of the population that I've been generally aware of that would have that stronger response to alcohol. But I think the shift for me is just thinking about it. It's sugar too, you know, and mm -hmm. she talks about this study done with mice, uh, these two different sets of mice. 
And it's fascinating because, you know, she feels the result of this study is basically what showed that the genetics can lead to a bigger endorphin response. But one of the, one of the, the main pieces of this that fascinated me was that she said, she refers to these two sets of mice as uh, C57 and the DBA. The C57 mice are the ones that have been deemed to be more sugar sensitive. And she says, not only does sugar reduce physical pain in the C57 mice, it also reduces the pain of loss or social isolation. If you think about endorphins and what we generally know that they do for us, it's pain relief, it's emotional resilience, but it's, it's a it's not a bonding chemical, but it has a lot to do with our relationships too, right? And so she's she kind of hones in on this concept. She says, but you know that sweet foods give you the comfort and make you feel less isolated and alone. And so generally when we think of foods or things that bring us that sense of comfort, we sort of loosely know it's providing endorphins for us. But when she specifically talked about this sense of isolation and loneliness and endorphins bringing us comfort for that, I was kind of like, oh my gosh, that this, it was like just that huge light bulb moment for me. Because when I think about my childhood, I think of the crushing loneliness. I think of the trauma of losing my brother. I think of the lack of understanding I had of how to process emotions physically and the dependencies that I developed on food and then nicotine and alcohol and that sort of thing. But it was the crushing loneliness, you know, that I had. And so reading this and how all the things I was craving and desiring and eating every day was probably self-medicating the loneliness was just like, oh my God, like I felt so seen. <laughs> I just felt seen reading that, you know, and validated. And it was like, here I am 42 years old. And it's like, I'm still having these like epiphanies in these moments of like, oh my gosh, you know, the insight is just, so that's why I'm like falling in love with this book. It's just, it's just fascinating. And I think, you know, I had all of those same feelings, Kelly, when I picked it up, it was such a revelation, Mm -hmm. you know, and I think my my journey started, you know, I picked that up 20 plus years ago. And I think wow. your, your journey started maybe what, 13 years ago, really? My, like My recovery journey started right after I turned 30. So yeah, 12 years ago. Okay. So, you know, like, um, I just, it was, that was the book that, that I came upon when I started, you know, and maybe for whatever reason, like, I, I don't know why it hasn't crossed your path before today, but, um, but I can resonate with all of that. Like, I was like, oh my God, this all, I'm not alone. Like this is, this is scientific. This makes sense. I'm um, there's a, there's an answer, mm-hmm. you know, there's an answer. Mm-hmm. There's things I can do. And, um, and I'm not, I'm not in a way I felt broken, but not in a way that it was my fault yeah. you know, anymore. It was like, yeah, there's things that are, that are, that are off, but, um, you know, I came out of the womb probably like this. I came into the world with a predisposition to be set up for these behaviors and these, um, these desires and these addictions and these cravings. Like mm-hmm. I'm just, I've just always been trying to balance something out. And I just didn't even know that. Right. You know? Yeah. My, psych- my psychologist at the same time even planted that seed too. He's like, well, maybe you just, there was something, maybe your body just knew that sugar and alcohol, those are the things that would make you feel normal. Like maybe there was just an undercurrent of something, you know, and 
-hmm. It's always an attempt to solve a problem, right? Mm -hmm. It's not like I'm this horrible person that's addicted to something. It's always an attempt to solve a problem. So whether it's lifting your depression, easing the pain relief, providing a sensation of um, reduced social anxiety or, or euphoria or anything that we're, we're desperately wanting in our life. And we don't have, for some reason, we're trying to solve that through these substances. And so it's fascinating to me. And the fact that you read that book and you felt seen 20 years ago, and now I'm reading it and I felt seen, I feel like there's so many other people out there that are struggling with this because, you know, we, we, this podcast and, and group is primarily about being in, in recovery from addictions to alcohol and drugs, but the sugar piece is such a big part of this. And I know that even if you haven't had uh, an issue with addiction, you don't believe that you had an, an issue with an, an addiction to substances, but maybe, maybe you have a loved one that does, or maybe you've just been struggling with this sugar piece. I think part of the reason why this is so hard is because if you're, if you think about what leads people to recovery, it's often experiencing the pain, right? That has been brought into your life as a result of that addiction. And that's what is finally prompting you to, to be in recovery. And oftentimes that pain is the result of a broken relationship. So maybe you have destroyed your relationship with your parents because of your addiction. Maybe you're losing a marriage over your addiction. Maybe you're, you're losing your kids over an addiction. So you experience that pain and that's what prompts you to go into recovery. But there's all these folks sitting here that are having an addiction to sugar and nobody are people around them may be experiencing some of the side effects, right? Their moodiness and their irritability, but they're not like, until you stop eating sugar, you're out of my life. Right. Mm. And so that external relationship health that's keeping people in a, you know, in that place of like exploring recovery and that sort of thing, that's not there. But what is there is a completely destroyed relationship with themselves so the people around them, those relationships are intact. So they don't have that prompting to like get this thing under control, but they're just self-sabotaging just as much. And they're destroying their relationship with themselves because they're constantly having that, that thought process and that dialogue of like, why can't I stop this? Why does this control me? Like, why do I have to live this way? And it's like their dirty little secret, you know? I remember sitting at, I have so many memories of sitting at parties like holiday parties, any type of gathering where there's multiple plates of food out and talking to somebody in front of me and like looking at the treats and maybe I've had one or maybe I haven't had a chance to get one, but I'm starting to sweat. I'm literally starting to sweat as I'm talking to the person because I'm, I'm like, how am I going to, how, how can I end this conversation? How can I, how can I still talk to them and just kind of reach over and grab something off this plate? Like I'm so hyper fixated on the sugar that's on the plate. And I often wonder like, is that me going into withdrawal too? Because she talks a lot about sugar withdrawal in this book Mm -hmm. and that's a real thing. And Mm -hmm. we're, we're not so much craving the sugar to like fix our problems or feel better. We're craving it because we get a sense of relief when we have it relief from the withdrawal. So like maybe I'm at a holiday party and I've been busy all day and I haven't been self-medicating with the sugar that I normally have because I knew it was at the party. And now I'm at the party and I'm sweating because I want to get something off that plate, but I'm stuck in this conversation with somebody like the freedom that I have from that is just crazy. Now it's crazy. I don't have any of that. I turn it all down and it doesn't affect me. It doesn't, 
I don't even know how to explain it. There's nothing on that plate that's like screaming out or reaching to me or like making my receptors go crazy. Like I can take it, I can leave it. There's nothing there anymore. And and that's what I want for everybody else that's in that place that we used to be in, you know? When absolutely. And I, I mean, for me, that's, um, I mean, I've experienced exactly what you just uh, gave an example of for years. I mean, it just became hyper exaggerated after, you know, um, my, I went into recovery, you know, I had, I think, you know, elements of imbalance for sure, but all of the years of alcohol abuse and, and dietary abuse too. Like, I mean, just everything's, you know, is Jamba juice, drugs, yeah. alcohol, and, you know, it was always like this sugary juice. So whether it was orange juice or later on in life, it was like Jamba juice and pizza. I li- those are, I lived on those two things, oh, like, yeah. uh, you know, and, um, and then drugs and alcohol. And so, but so just kind of like the, the damage I did to my body for that good, almost a decade. When I came out of that, I was so hyper-focused and always constantly distracted by, you know, what's in my cupboard, what's at this party, when am I going to get my next fix or whatever, just, just so, so hyper-focused, like you said. So I didn't notice it as much as a child, but once I put my body into complete imbalance after, um, you know, going into recovery, then I started to really, really see how that just was like a magnet anywhere I went, you know, and I used to, my best friend, um, I remember telling her, I was like, um, I was so far from like, you know, picking up a drink, you know, or, um, or drugs, you know, that wasn't a concern, but, but sugar and chocolate, I was like, don't worry. I was like, don't worry about your, your booze, your cocaine, no worries. Hide your chocolate and hide your sugar. Oh my gosh. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. cause if there's anything, any of your favorite little items, I will find them, mm-hmm. you know, while you're mm-hmm. at work. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. And just the, the painful, the, the painful place that it puts you in, in terms of that relationship with yourself and, you know, who, who, who are you really? And why can't you control yourself? It's just so damaging. Um, and you I know, think and you I just said, I think what you just said a moment ago about, you know, this program is mainly for people, um, recovering from alcohol and drugs. Like, can we just say that sugar, it truly is a drug. Like yeah. it's, it's a legal, very ever pervasive drug. Yeah, absolutely. I do believe that it's a drug and I do believe that it's addicting. Um, and then, and the challenge is right. It's in everything <laughs> and we can't just give up food in general. So that's part of why this is so difficult. It's not, um, it's probably not as difficult as people think it is when they have the exact tools that they need. You know, when you have the exact blueprint for how to address this, there, there's some pain in that process, but it's not, it doesn't have to be as scary as people think it is, you know? Right. Um, Withdrawal doesn't have to be as horrible. Like it can be totally manageable. Yeah, absolutely. It can be totally manageable. There's so many ways you can make that a less painful experience for sure. Um, and this is kind of like a thought that I had earlier and I forgot to bring it up is I do, I do talk a lot in groups about how, if you think of like a grilled cheese sandwich, the cheese and the white flour, both of those components create morphine like molecules in the brain for the, for anything that's made with gluten, it's called a gluteomorphin. And for anything that's made with dairy, it's called a caseomorphin. And so we always think of comfort foods, comfort foods, right. Um, you know, maybe it's got something to do with our childhood or our grandma or something. And maybe it does 
because it almost feels like your grandma's hugging you when you eat those foods, but it is actually creating these beta endorphins in the brain, you know, these morphine like molecules. So it's not just sugar, but it is other, you know, components too. oftentimes white flour and, and dairy to some extent can do that for people. So, um, yeah, just interesting stuff. You know, the last, the very last topic that I was just going to very briefly bring up today is candida candida is a type of like fungal or yeast infection that can occur in a lot of different places in the body. Like sometimes people think of just the classic yeast infections for women. It's like, you know, vaginal yeast infections, or you hear about babies getting thrush, which is basically like a yeast infection, like in their mouth and in the oral cavity. But candida is a type of fungus that can grow in many places in the body, especially in the GI tract. It is extremely common for people who have active addictions to alcohol, and when they are, when they go into recovery from alcohol, that alcohol was oftentimes feeding the candida because candida feeds on sugar. And so when you take the alcohol out, sometimes people that have like these really intense cravings, it's because it's rooted in this overgrowth of candida. Most people have small amounts of candida to a certain degree. It's the overgrowth of it that can become problematic and really lead to these really intense sugar cravings. So sometimes when I'm talking to people and they're sort of describing their sugar cravings as like taking them over and no matter what they do, it's like extremely intense. Um, that's an area that we look at. You can actually go to a, like a free website online. There's a whole there's a lot of programs out there, but there's a whole program um, dedicated to just helping people with this. It's the Candida Diet, and they have a free questionnaire. It's only like 11 questions, but they have a free questionnaire on their website you could take to see potentially if, you know, you score a certain amount on this quiz. It can tell you like, oh, this is definitely something you might want to look into. And you can go through your doctor or your natural path or whatever to order these tests for you to see if you have Candida. But oftentimes just doing the questionnaires and seeing if it's an issue for you is sort of information enough to help you start addressing it, which mm -hmm. addressing it involves changing the diet and introducing some herbs and specific types of probiotics, but it's nothing like too overwhelming. Well, I, can I share my experience with candida real quick? Yeah. Oh, please do. So, um, 20 years ago, when I first started this journey, I did do a candida test. One of my doctors, you know, um, mm -hmm. had the foresight to order one of those, but it showed up as negative. And mm -hmm. so we didn't treat it. Um, later on in life, I just, I heard from my current doctor that there are a lot of false negatives on candida mm -hmm. tests. What type of test was it? Do you remember like stool versus blood stool. Versus stool. stool. Okay. Mm -hmm. And, um, so I don't know, maybe it was like five, six years ago. Now, when I did another candida test, I hadn't done one in, you know, 15 years or whatever, that one came up positive. And so we treated uh, candida and so like, so we treated candida. No, let's see. The first thing that happened prior to that too, is actually, I heard that, you know, this, it was like when keto was getting big and like, I heard that keto was really great for a ketogenic diet was really great for um, balancing blood sugar. Mm. And for, um, and for other reasons that I can talk about in another episode too. But, um, so I was like, I should try that. And so two, th I discovered two things in a short period of time. One, the ketogenic diet was not working for me at all. I could not get into ketosis. It was just so flipping hard. And I gained a bunch of weight. Oh. And what I learned shortly after that is that I had a belly full of candida. So like, I was just like my, I didn't have, there were 
I didn't have the the right microbes. I didn't, my stomach, my intestinal lining, nothing was working to process all that fat that I was eating. Right. And I wasn't getting the sugar. So I was just miserable, but there was still die off happening. So I was, I was like, I had headaches and I was even thrown up a little bit. Like I was having this horrible die off from the, and I was taking, um, I ended up taking like, a um, I forget the name of it now, but something to kill the candida as well like a prescription and some other kind of natural remedies. Like I think like grapefruit seed extract and something else. Mm -hmm. And so it was just really interesting. I tried to, so the ketogenic diet didn't work for me because I had a belly full of candida. I didn't know I had candida for so long because I had false negative tests. Mm -hmm. When I finally learned I did have it, then I did that. It wasn't easy. It really Mm -hmm. wasn't an easy thing for me to, it was, it was a, a few months of feeling really crummy. Oh my goodness. You know, and like, so I, I, I hate to say that it's, if for some people it might be a much easier thing, but for me, it was, it was not, it was not an easy one to just kind of like get through. And I, and it can come back pretty easily too. Mm -hmm. It's opportunistic. So if you you start eating more sugar, if you start drinking alcohol, there's all these things that can throw that imbalance off and it just gives it an opportunity to, to overgrow and take over. Mm -hmm. Um, that's really interesting. The addicted side of you is just like, Oh, just a little bit of this, just a little bit. Right. And what's happening is you're the candida is communicating with your brain saying we need these carbs or sugar or alcohol to survive. And so all you're seeing is how it manifests in those cravings and the negotiation that's going on in your head. Um, gosh, that's so interesting. And there's so many other side effects to candida too. It's not just those sugar cravings. It's like foggy brain and lethargy and, you know, bloating, it can be in the belly too. So, um, I use something called bioenergetic testing to see if, Candida is present. It is not a candida test, a but test. it looks, huh? Is it a breath test? No, it is urine. And, I'm sorry. It's hair and saliva. Oh. And so it looks for the frequencies of candida. Um, so, and I, I do, I see it a lot um, show up on these scan reports that we get from clients that do the bioenergetic testing. So yeah, it's just, it's just fascinating stuff, but definitely something, you know, to look at or have a lengthier discussion about if you're experiencing really intense sugar cravings. When you said, and this is the last thing I'm going to bring up before we wrap it up. But when you said keto, it reminded me that I had something in my notes about fasting. So in relationship to the beta endorphins. So I get this question a lot about whether or not fasting is appropriate for people in recovery. And my general recommendation is that you should wait a couple years to try fasting. um, Because if you don't have the foundation of balanced blood sugar. And then you just throw yourself into this fasted state where, and maybe even you have a lot of nutrient deficiencies. You haven't taken the time to repair yet. It can exacerbate that fight or flight effect we talked about and keep you in that mental, you know, brain state of putting you at risk of relapse. But she talked in her book, uh, Kathleen de Maison's about people who will fast And sometimes people don't know they're fasting. I see this all the time with people in recovery. They go, I'm not the type of person who eats breakfast. I've just never eaten breakfast. You know, like maybe I have a cup of coffee and maybe I have a cup of coffee and a cigarette or whatever. And I don't eat till later in the afternoon. So they're not necessarily like, oh, I'm living the fasted life. That's just the pattern of eating that they've had. They're skipping breakfast and they are technically fasting for a long period of time. That process tricks the body into thinking it's going into starvation mode in a sense. 
And so the one of the reactions to that is it releases these beta endorphins. So people will tell you, I feel better when I don't eat, but it's because their body is producing these endorphins and pain relief. And so they think they feel amazing. So they'll tell you like, oh, like I'm, I'm sharper. I feel better. Like I'm, and I remember I used to run a fasting clinic. There are therapeutic benefits to fasting, by the way. It's just, it's not for everybody is my point. And we can always have a lengthier conversation about that. Um, but specifically for people in recovery, it can be a relapse, a relapse risk for that reason. And people will often report feeling better, but it's because they're actually getting these feel good chemicals to protect them to protect them from the pain of, of starving. And so, um, and, 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 and that's not always the case. Sometimes people feel better when they fast, um, because the increase in stress hormones actually makes them feel better or the increase in ke the ketone bodies actually make their brain, um, feel sharper. And so it's a little bit of a complicated thing, but I wanted to bring that up because I always get questions about fasting. Is it appropriate? Is it not appropriate? How long should you wait? The general recommendation is a couple years, but I, I thought it was interesting about, cause I hear that all the time is I just feel better. I just feel better but people just don't realize that they're exacerbating some of their nutrient deficiencies and they're potentially putting themselves in that fight or flight state, which is just a huge, you know, relapse risk. So, mm -hmm. so yeah, you know, I was thinking that the last minute of, of every episode, I would just sort of talk about like, what are the takeaways? Cause we talk about so much information and somebody who may feel just like bewildered at the end of an episode and be like, Oh my gosh, that was so great. But like, what do I do now? And what I would say, like the wrap up summary of this episode would be is start thinking about what your blood sugar management looks like. If it's something you've never thought about at all, start paying closer attention to how you feel after eating certain foods. And I highly, highly, highly recommend you food journal. I'm going to be producing like a very specific type of workbook for the people in the membership um, group that will show them exactly how to track these things every day. But just in general, you could take out a piece of paper or your own notebook, just start jotting down how you feel physically and emotionally. Um, you can look into these blood sugar monitoring systems. You could go and buy like the contour one from the pharmacy, which is like 10 bucks to start doing the finger pricks and start looking at that. You could do the keto mojo, which is the device that I use that looks at both blood sugar management, as well as whether or not you're producing ketones. You could do the freestyle Libre, which is a continuous glucose monitor, otherwise known as a CGM. You could just go to your doctor, they can write you a prescription for it and you can get the first two weeks free. And then the second two weeks is only 75 bucks. Um, and that attaches to an app on your phone and you just hit the phone on, on the sensor and you get all this live data all the time. So, so going back to the takeaways, just start thinking about how well you manage blood sugar. And then from a practical standpoint, if you're not eating breakfast or your breakfast is an orange juice and a bagel, start figuring out how to add protein to that. You don't have to take away the orange juice and the bagel yet. Just add the protein, see what difference it makes for you. You know? So if you want to make the jump, make the jump and just have some scrambled eggs and get rid of the orange juice. And protein. But, but for most people, they'll probably do better with a progression, right? Add some stuff in, add the protein and see how it goes. And if you already eat a high protein breakfast, but maybe the other meals of the day are kind of lower in protein, then look at your lunch, look at your dinner. How can you incorporate protein, you know, three times a day? 
So that's what I would say would be the big takeaways for today is thinking about your blood sugar, starting to do some journaling around that, adding protein in at breakfast for sure, but throughout your meals during the day if possible. And if you suspect that candida may be an issue for you, you know, check out the candida diet questionnaire that's free online at that website. You just Google candidadiet.com candida questionnaire. It'll come right up. That's pickles. Yeah. Hi, pickles. pickles. Perfect timing. You saying it's time to end the show. Come here. Yeah, it is. <laughs> Sorry about that. So yeah, no, I mean, any final thoughts from you? Thank you so much for doing this episode with me because it was so much better than having to do it on my own. And I think we just, I think we threw out some like amazing nuggets that people are going to resonate with and resonate with our stories. And they're going to start thinking and acting, you know, differently around these topics. And that's what I think. What do you think? <laughs> I agree. Absolutely. I think, I mean, just some of the things you said to me were just so poignant and I could tell some of the things that I mentioned to you. I could just, you can just tell when it's just like, yeah, I get you. I'm there. I understand all the things. And I know that it's happening across the board. Um, one thing, I guess I, I want to be, uh, clear on, and I could ask you after the show, but I feel like I might as well just ask you now because other people question. Um, so we talked about like, serotonin, beta, beta endorphin, mm-hmm. beta endorphin, come, like serotonin comes from tryptophan, you know, tryptophan oh. precursor. So beta endorphin, what's the link there? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So at, so if we're doing it in contrast to serotonin, serotonin is made from one single molecule. So if you just picture like a little bubble of tryptophan, that's all you need to get that process started. Endorphins are different. You actually need, they are long chains of amino acids with many different amino acids up to like 31. There's a couple different types of endorphins. Beta endorphin is just one type of endorphin, but they are typically longer chains of amino acids. So what does that mean in practical information? It means wide variety of proteins. Just don't, don't just eat eggs, right? Get your protein from as many protein sources as you can. So you can access all those different amino acids to rebuild your own endorphins, right? Wow. So you can make those on an everyday basis, start your day with a full cup of endorphins so that you have the emotional resilience and the pain relief to cope with life, which is often painful. So I would say, um, since you brought up resilience, I'd say another takeaway from this program is, is that, you know, going back to the, where we started. Mm-hmm. And starting to just notice, you know, is it your um, reactive or resilient brain? Yeah. You know, so th- yeah. that as well as noticing your, um, you know, how you feel with food. Also, Absolutely. I just think that was such a big, big, huge thing that you might have introduced to a lot of people. This world could use a lot more self-aware people. <laughs> So that may be your first step, just becoming more self-aware. How are you showing up? And specifically, which part of the brain are you operating out of? Are you being the parent or are you being the toddler? Simple as that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and thank you for bringing that up. And remembering that the parent is going to be, um, by managing your blood sugar, you're going to be more in parent mode. Yes. Yeah. Calm, cool, and collected, you know, being the leader. Yeah. Um, yeah. Such great points. Well, thank you so much. That concludes our very first episode of sugar. There will be many more. We will take deeper dives into all of these different topics. Um, but thank you for joining us today. We're so excited to have you here as our listeners and we'll see you in the next episode. So thanks Nikki. Enjoy your holidays. I'll see you in the new year. (laughs) Awesome. Thanks Kelly. Bye everybody. 
Hey friends, if you loved what you heard today, please consider sharing this episode with a friend, post it on your social media, give us a rating on whatever platform you're listening from today, or give us a review. This really helps us to reach more people and give them hope that they too can reach optimal health and recovery. And for sure, head over to the Addiction Nutritionist website to sign up for our newsletter and check out Recovery U at www.theaddictionnutritionist.com. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you feel inspired today to recover well. Quick disclaimer, Nikki and I are not medical professionals in any way, shape, or form, and nothing on this podcast constitutes medical advice. It is purely for educational purposes only. Please consult your personal team of health professionals before making any changes to your diet, supplements, medication, or lifestyle. Thanks for listening, 